Good evening, everybody. Everybody well tonight? Very nice. So I'm going to ask a question that you might want to be careful about answering because you might date yourself. So how many people remember the television series Lost in Space? Okay, that's good. So now, there was a line uttered in, in that series that continues to contribute to pop culture even today, decades after the show has gone off. What was that line? Do you remember? Mm. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. That's listed as like the, like the top three out of the 100 greatest movie or most memorable TV series lines. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. And what's interesting about that is it's endured so long that you would think that that line was uttered every, every show. It was said one time. One time, the first season, episode 11. So yeah, it was by the, a character called the robot because it was literally a robot. Actually, it was a man in a ro robot costume, but it was the robot. So in this one particular scene, he said, danger, Will Robinson, danger. So tonight, we're going to study 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 10. And if this, this section was titled, Danger, Timothy, Danger, or Danger, Christian Church, Danger, or Danger, Believer, Danger, it would be appropriate, because just as the, the, the robot statement, danger, Will Robinson, danger, has endured for decades, so too is Paul's warning of the dangers threatening the church as timely today as it was 2,000 years ago. So tonight, as we work through this passage, we're going to see four things. We're going to see the dangers that threaten the church, thus us. We're going to see a call to help others avoid these dangers, a call for us to avoid these dangers, and the means through which we avoid these dangers. So we have a lot to work through tonight. So let's get going. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for allowing us to be here tonight, God. You blessed our hearts to be here. You blessed us to want to be here. We could be anywhere else, but you called us to be here, to gather around your word, Lord. It's a privilege to speak it tonight, Father. So bless me in delivering it. May I do it service, God, for your glory, and I pray you open our ears and soften our hearts that we would receive the, these words, and Father, be changed by them. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. All right, so let's read the entire passage first, and then I'm going to go back and we'll break it down line by line. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. May God bless the reading of this word tonight. 
So Paul introduces three, three dangers in the, in the very first verse of this chapter. It says, now the Spirit expressly it says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So before we break that down, let, let's make sure we're on the same page as to from where does Paul get this information and, and the time in which these dangers will occur. So the first part of the verse reads, now the Spirit expressly says. So Paul is speaking of a specific revelation that he got from the Holy Spirit. So this, re this revelation may have spontaneously been given to him. So maybe by the word now, he's going, as I write this, Timothy, this is what the Holy Spirit is telling me. So that's possible. However, about eight years ago, he wrote, um, before he wrote this letter, Paul mentioned basically the same thing in Acts, verses, I mean, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So it may have been that back then the Holy Spirit showed Paul these things, and now he's giving Timothy the same heads up that the Holy Spirit gave him now. Now, if that's the case, when Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says, the word now doesn't mean this exact moment in time. He's saying, now, Timothy, pay attention. He's, he's drawing back his bow to get our attention to talk about what he's getting ready to say next. So now is a point of emphasis. But either way, what Paul makes abundantly clear is this information didn't come from him or any other human. It came from, from God. So let's move on to the next part of the sentence. In later times. So now is Paul referring to like a, a more distant final stage of history? Or is he talking about something that's happening now? So is he saying, someday this is going to happen, or here we are, right now? And the answer is yes to both. He's talking about dangers that, ha that are progressively unfolding from the moment of his writing and forward. Because Paul's immediate objective as he's writing this is to prepare Timothy to protect and, and, and defend the church right at that moment. And we saw right off the bat, if you remember in, in verse 3 of the first chapter of the letter, Paul's orientation is in present times. He said, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So in that verse, the so that you may charge certain persons indicates that particular people were doing something at that point in time that Paul needed Timothy to address. So it's unlikely that between the time that we refer to as the first chapter and the last, in, in chapter four, that, that Paul some kind of way spiderwebbed and went from talking about the presence to the, to the, to the future. So when we start to break this down, we'll see that, Tim, that Paul's warning to Timothy is about the present before he wrote this, but also it points to Christ's return during those times. So let's discuss the, the exact three dangers that, that Paul mentions in that, that first verse. He speaks of apostasy, deceivers, and false teaching. Apostasy, deceivers, and false teaching. So the first is, is apostasy. And apostasy means the abandonment or renunciation of usually a religious belief. So an apostate is a person that has completely rejected Christianity, although they first at one time ex accepted it, 
they call themselves Christians, or they, they, they reject essential elements of, of Christianity. So things like, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but things like denying the Trinity, or denying that Jesus was the Son of God, or denying that Jesus was resurrected, or anything else that makes our faith what it is. Now, of course, one of the reasons why Paul mentioned this to Timothy is because there was a chance that he would encounter apostasy in his church. We know that based on what I read in, from um, the first chapter, that there was already some false teaching going on in the church. But, he, but Paul doesn't mention that there was apostasy. And there, there's a difference between the two. And as we work through this tonight, you, we'll, we'll make that clearer. But another reason why Paul warns Timothy could be something that a lot of us can relate to. Has anyone ever had a family member or a friend or an influential person in the church that you know of that professed to be a Christian but then turned from the faith? I was like, I guess I was about 14 or 15, and my family and I went to the same church for years. And then my parents decided that we were going to go to a different church, and I did not like that church. And, um, but what I did like was there was this one pastor, an assistant pastor, that preached once a month. And one reason why I liked him, to be honest, was he got to the point very fast. So the sermons weren't really long. So I appreciated that because I didn't want to be there in the first place. But the other thing was he was such a nice guy. He loved the Lord. There was no question about it. And what was amazing is that he could take any conversation that started off any way, and within four minutes, you're talking about Christ. I mean, you could say, hey, I just tried this new deodorant. This is fantastic. Four minutes later, you're in a prayer circle. And it, it wasn't even weird. Like, he just got you there. He loved the Lord. I really liked him, but I didn't like him so much that when I had the independence to leave the church, I decided to stay. I was, I was out. And years later, I mean, it was decades later. I think I was even married, so we're talking, had to be almost 20 years later. I bumped into somebody who was a member of that church. So, of course, I asked about this pastor. And I expected them to say that he's now a head pastor somewhere. He's got his own church. And the gentleman said, no, Glenn, it's pretty bad. Not only is he not a pastor, he renounced Christianity. I said, what? He said, it, he, he said the pastor said that it was foolishness. All the time that he spent in ordination and learning, he said that was foolishness. And he said he felt bad for leading people astray. It's hard to really put words around how that impacted me. It didn't shake my faith. I'd walked with the Lord for a while since then. But the only way I can explain it was it hurt my soul. It was like the wind was just pulled right out of me. You know, I, I, I was confused. So Paul himself experienced hardship in his ministry caused by apostasy as well. In his first and second letters to Timothy, Paul mentioned three people by name that were at one, one time on course, but then they veered off, off track into apostasy. In 1 Timothy 1, 18, 20, Paul wrote, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He also wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 16, 19, but avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, 
They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we have Alexander mentioned in, in Paul's first letter. Philetus mentioned in his second letter. And Hymenaeus must have really been messed up because he was in both. So now the, these are men who at one time were true Christians. And given the influence that they had in the church, they were probably leaders. They may have even been pastors. But regardless of what their formal positions were, at one point, Paul considered them assets. They were key to building the church, and they, then they, they, they turned. Now, just as a quick aside while we're here, I want, I want to mention something about Hymenaeus Alexander specifically, but also anyone else who may have gone into apostasy. Maybe Paul hadn't given up on Hymenaeus and Alexander. Because he says he handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, sure, maybe what Paul is saying is, look, they, they turn from the faith, whatever, and they're going to sin, but let them at least learn not to sin in such a way that hurts the church. But also, maybe this is a situation like Paul mentioned to the Corinthian church about the young man who was caught in sin. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Meaning, put him out of the church, may the world beat up on him a little bit, so he can realize how much he needs Christ and he returns to it. So it's definitely possible for people who have seemingly turned from the Lord to return to him by God's grace and power. It's funny how we randomly bump into people. You know, like, you can bump into somebody out of nowhere that you went to school with, like, in third grade, you know? But I really don't anticipate ever bumping into that pastor again, at least on this side of eternity. But I really hope I see him on the other side. So it must have been shocking, disappointing, and confusing to the members of the, of the church when it happened to Paul and, and maybe when it happened to, to Timothy that apparently devout and influential people had turned from the faith. And a lot of work probably went into helping them reconcile this. You know, work and time and effort that could have been spent on other important aspects of their ministry. So Paul needed to give Timothy a heads up that this was going to happen or walk him through some apostasy already happening in the, in the Ephesian church. So while we're here, and just to be thorough, let's answer or talk about an obvious question. Is it possible for a Christian to become an apostate? The short answer is, is no. And as usual, the Bible is our guide. If we look at 1 John 2, 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So if Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander and the pastor that I referred to turned back to the Lord, then it would prove that they were always Christians. They just went astray. If they don't turn back, according to that verse, they were never Christians in the first place. Whenever we're talking about falling away from the Lord, apostasy, fading away, there's usually two kind of polar positions that a lot of times Christians can adopt. The one is, oh my, I had this thought. I was confused. I don't know about this. I'm still stumbling over this. Maybe I'm an apostate, like Glenn was talking about on that Wednesday night. Or there's the, brother, no way I would ever become an apostate. Look at this foundation. I'm solid. 
Is either one possible? Is either one true? Well, as we work through this tonight, Paul's going to give us some explanations on that. So I'll have to let the suspense hang in the air a little bit as we move on to the next verse. So now verse 2, Paul describes the second danger, deceivers. He says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Paul is now talking about apostates who influence others into apostasy. So now at the time, Paul was writing specifically about a group called Gnostics. Now these were a religious sect that tried to enforce false, false rules as conditions for following God based on their belief that all physical matter was evil. So you know, food being physical, they thought it was evil. And marriage is a physical union between two people, so they thought that by doing that, it made people unholy. So though Paul was specifically speaking about Gnostics then, the message pertains to anyone who has abandoned the faith and trying to recruit new members through their false teachings even today. Paul bluntly calls them liars because that's exactly what they are. Now here's an interesting statement within an already interesting statement. Paul writes the insincerity of liars. In Bible versions like the King James and the NIV, this verse calls these people hypocrites. And hypocrisy is defined as the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. So the implication here is that these deceivers probably call themselves Christians. Even though they were, they were twisting and manipulating God's word probably to justify their own ideas or agendas or justify their pride or sin, they still called themselves Christians. The next part of the verse, consciences are seared. Now, the conscience is, is God's given moral awareness within every person, regardless of their faith or, or lack thereof. It, it's what gives us the ability to know what's right from what's wrong. Go to anybody, go to an atheist, and ask them if they think pedophilia is wrong. They're going to say, yes, it is. Well, how do they know that? Probably weren't taught it. It's, the, it's a conscience that God has already given them. So listen to what Paul tells us in Romans 2, 14 and 15. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they don't formally know what God's word is, they haven't studied it, may not have even opened the Bible. By nature do what the law requires, meaning they instinctively obey it without hearing it, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law, meaning they know what to do even though they were never taught to do it. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this, this God-given sensitivity called conscience gives all people the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. It makes anybody at least feel guilty. Now, it doesn't make them feel convicted, though, because guilt means that we feel bad about doing something that we shouldn't have done. So that rises out of our conscience. Conviction is when we feel bad about sinning against God, and that rises from our Holy Spirit. So non-believers can't be convicted. They can feel guilty, but not convicted. So turning back to 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul says that the conscience of the hypocrites is seared. This is also interesting. Conscience comes into play when there's a moral dilemma. It manifests when, when people are conscious that what they're thinking about doing or what they are doing is, is wrong. 
it isn't an issue when they're doing what they know is right. So Paul mentioning the conscience of the hypocrites leading people to stray seems to indicate that their God-given sensitivity informs them that what they're doing is wrong. Like they know what they're teaching is not true. But their, their consciences are seared. The process of, of, of searing deadens nerves, and nerves allow us to feel, right? It's, it's God's amazing design to protect the body from harm. You know, we touch something hot. We don't contemplate it, right? We don't go... Hey, you smell bacon? Oh, that's my hand. Maybe I should move it. That's probably bad. We just pull it right back, right? So the conscience is the, is the spiritual nerve endings that, that tells us what's right or wrong. And, he's tell, and, and, and Paul is telling us that the spiritual nerve endings of deceivers is so seared that they don't even, they're not able to respond correctly. They know it's wrong, but they have the, they're not, they're not able to make adjustments. Their consciences have been seared. Now we see in verse Paul points to the third danger, false teaching. So still speaking about insincere liars, he says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So these false teaching, teachers were teaching that following this, this man-made list of rules made people justified in God's sight. So that they would somehow be more holy if they didn't marry and if they didn't eat certain foods. So Paul certainly wasn't the first one in the Bible to talk about false teachers. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself mentioned it in Matthew 7, 15. He said, beware of false prophets, meaning those who make false religious claims or teachings, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, Peter's warning in chapter 2, verse 1 of his second letter is similar to Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 4. He says, false prophets are, also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, Peter mentions exactly what false teaching is, heresy. And heresy is the teaching of or believing in things that oppose God's word clearly about things that he's already said about them. So in, in 1 Timothy 4.3, Paul identifies two heresies, that people shouldn't marry and certain foods should not be eaten. And immediately he explains how these false teachings about these particular topics transgress God's purpose for these things. Because God gave us marriage and whatever foods the false prophets were saying should be avoided to help us appreciate and, and honor him. And it tells us right there from the, the it looks like the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. It says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So it's our embracing of marriage and our, thanks, and our thankfulness for the good things that God gives us that makes us stand out from the unbelieving world. So we need to incorporate what God deems good for our walk with him, not run away from it. Teaching or believing otherwise is heresy. 
Now, apostasy and heresy aren't the same things, but they're very closely related. Heresy is at the root of all apostasy. Now, keep in mind that an apostate is someone who stopped believing in core characteristics of Christianity and switched over to opposing doctrines. Opposing doctrines to the, the truth of God's word is heresy. So yes, all apostates embrace heresy, but not everyone that, that embraces heresy is an apostate. Now, I'm not intimating that heresy may be okay, depending on, on, on what the issue is and, and, and how far we take it. If God has made something known, and it's clear, and there's no way to interpret it otherwise, and it is interpreted otherwise, it's heresy. And it's something that, that's serious and it needs to be addressed. But what I am saying is that there could be a difference between the impact of heresy on our salvation and the impact of apostasy. Because an apostate is not saved, period. All apostates become apostates by first believing heresy. But is someone who subscribes to some heretical beliefs apostates? Maybe or maybe not. It depends, on, again, on the level and the extent of the heresy that person subscribes to. So I know this is getting a little bit confusing, so let me try to use a couple of scenarios that might clear this up a little bit. We certainly want to avoid judging it, the sincerity of a person's confession. But just as an example, here's a scenario. Let's say that a man says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus was anything other than a good man. He was a prophet. He was really smart, but he, was, he came into the world like everybody else, and he made the world a little bit better by his teaching, but, but I am a Christian. Well, it's kind of hard to believe that he's a Christian when, when, he, when he denies an elemental aspect of our salvation. Let's say that a woman says that she's a Christian, but she doesn't believe that, that homosexuality is a sin. Just you know, she thinks that, that, that God's view on homosexuality is different than what it says in the Bible. Now, God has made it abundantly clear that homosexuality is a sin. And a confessed Christian to somehow believe that God views homosexuality in another way is heretical. But it's kind of a stretch to say, based on that alone, that that woman is not a Christian. Now, granted, someone who interprets or denies God's clear instruction about something opens up the door to wonder if there's other areas that they may doubt that it kind of makes us wonder if that person's a, a, a Christian. If people confess that their belief in major characteristics of Christianity they hold firm to, but they seem to doubt a lot of the other areas, then we got to wonder, do they really believe what they say they believe in? Do they believe in those, those elemental factors of Christianity? So I hope that we can all agree that instead of splitting hairs or debating, like where does a person stop just being a, a heretic to apostasy, is you know good the best the best medicine is just to avoid um, heresy in the first place but sometimes that's not that easy to do we're going to talk about that a little bit later in verses one through five paul warned timothy about the dangers of the church starting in six paul changes direction so he introduces to timothy the call to develop and maintain a strong ministry in light of these dangers and to us paul introduces the third point that we're going to look at tonight, the call to help others guard themselves from the forces that pull them away from the Lord. So in verse 6 it says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith 
and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You will be a good servant of Christ. So through this statement, Paul is pointing out to Timothy and to us believers that the heart of the matter, the objective of all that we do, our top priority is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So how do we serve Jesus? By serving others in Christ-like ways for his glory. In fact, this verse is translated in King James Version as, you will be a good minister. Or if you really want to sound learned, you'll use the original King James and say, thou shalt be a good minister. So I especially like the way one commentary explained minister. It said, a minister of Christ is someone who ministers for Christ in the manner Christ would minister if he were here. One more time. A minister of Christ is someone who ministers for Christ in the manner Christ would minister if he were here. So going back to the first part of this verse, if we put these things, meaning pointing them out to our brothers, fellow Christians, we are serving them, we're, we're doing good by them, and thereby upholding and glorifying Jesus Christ. So what are these things? These are the things that were mentioned in verses 1 through 5, apostasy, deceivers, and heresy. So what's the basis of our argument that these things, apostasy, deceivers, and heresy, is not right? What, what's the measuring rod or the litmus test or any euphemism we use for judging something? Well, Paul tells us right there in verse 6. He says, training in the words of the faith and of the good doctrines that you have followed. So words of faith and good doctrine that we have been taught, that we study, that we strive to put into practice every day, these are the foundations of our argument. Godly teaching is what informs us that apostasy, deceivers, and heresies are wrong. So we are to demonstrate care for the hearts and souls of our brothers and sisters by graciously and lovingly redirecting them to the faith and good doctrine that we've been trained in when they start to go astray. So this brings us to uh, verse 7, which points out the third thing that we're going to look at tonight, the call to guard ourselves from um, danger. So the first part of, of verse 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Paul exhorts Timothy to not mix his ministry, which is based on the words of faith and good doctrine, with the words of man. So yes, this exhortation includes not being influenced by the things that we talked about in verses 1 through 5, but it also includes any other opinion of man. We can be sure of this because Paul didn't just say, have nothing to do with false teaching or have nothing to do with apostasy. He's expanding the threat to include more, than, more things than um, things that are related to faith-based rituals and, and, and food. To Timothy and us, he's talking about avoiding anything that would lessen our effectiveness to minister to others. So Paul's not intimating that we don't address things that are harmful to people's walk with the Lord. That would belie what he told us to do in verse 6. But rather, he's telling us to make sure we aren't ourselves influenced by opinions and positions that don't hold up under the scrutiny of words of faith and sound doctrine. And there are so many powerful currents out there that make us drift if we're not careful. Like every day we're bombarded by people's opinions and positions and attitudes about politics, social justice, the environment, sports, entertainment, all those things. And the Christian default response to things like that is we don't focus on worldly things. We focus on the gospel. 
I understand and I appreciate that sentiment when, when Christians say this, depending on what they mean by it. If they're saying that we aren't to focus on worldly things so much that it distracts us from the Lord, then yes, that's good. But if they're saying we really, we're not doing, talking about it because we want to ignore it. We're going to keep that outside and we're going to focus on the Bible and everything within this circle. I don't think that's what we're called to do. Controversial topics and issues are normal aspects of life. And the Bible points us to honoring and glorifying the Lord as we navigate through this world. Therefore, those worldly things are, are part of this. The thing is, we may not want to talk about it, but everybody else is. And we're constantly hearing people's opinions about them. Like, we don't even have to talk to them about it. We don't have to watch the news or read the newspaper or go to Facebook. All you got to do is drive. Read the bumper sticker in front of you or the window decal or the flags flying behind the pickup trucks that go by you, or the lawn signs. It's, it's, it's everywhere. We can't escape it. And let's be frank, honestly, we don't escape talking about those things. It's not like we avoid talking about them. We just are careful with who we share our opinions with. Usually it's with people that we believe will feel the same way. The thing is, we should talk about them. So the question is, if we should talk about them, then the question is, how do we talk about them? It's what are we saying about them and how are we saying it? If we're talking to fellow believers, the Bible is clear in, in verses like Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If we're talking to unbelievers, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you treat outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. So what are we saying in, regard, in regards to worldly matters? Do our thoughts, words, and actions indicate that we hold firmly to what God says about those things? Or do they really show that we subscribe to something different? We see a lot of Christians, we see a lot of churches, we see a lot of prominent church leaders modifying God's word by infusing the agenda of whatever cause they support into it. The thing is, God's word modified is not God's word. It's heresy. And I'm not saying that someone who mixes worldly agendas and positions in their faith is automatically an apostate. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying again is that heresy is the gateway to apostasy. I'm saying that they're on dangerous course. So politics and other worldly concerns sh should be irreverent and, and, I mean, irrelevant in shaping our faith, but our faith should be the factor that shapes our political positions and any other worldview. Um, next part of verse 7. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So now Paul is guiding us in, in how to be in position to help others and help ourselves fight off the things that are, that are prone to make believers go off course. Would you all agree that Paul is an expert communicator? Like Paul is amazing when you look at his, his, his letters. He crafts his letters around the listener. If he's talking to Jews, he interjects Jewish culture. He used a lot of military terms because people were very familiar with, with military tactics back then. And based on the references that he uses with Timothy, we may be able to deduce that Timothy found that things like discipline, training, and physical exercise was very important. So within the verses that we're studying tonight, just within the first 10 verses, he, Paul uses the word train or training three times. 
So that's like every other verse almost. And at the end of this section, Paul references physical exercise. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, he wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We learn a very, very valuable lesson from Paul related to communication. And I'm digressing a little bit, but I'll, I'll get back on course. What we learn is it's the responsibility of whoever is leading a dynamic to craft the way they communicate to whoever they follow them based on the way that they hear, not the other way around. It's not the follower's responsibility to craft the way they hear and take in information based on how the leader speaks. Does that make any sense? Let me try to put it this way. Again, I always say this. I'm in human resources. Half the problems I face is leaders not knowing how to talk to their staff. They go, Glenn, this person's doing this, and they did this again. And I ask, well, what, what did you say to them? Like, what, what are you doing? What are you saying? And nine times out of ten, the manager is speaking and doing things in terms that make sense to, to, to him or her, but not to the people that are following them. It's just like a bunch of words. So whether it's a teacher to a student or parent to a child or manager to an employee, we've got to craft, if we're that person leading that, We've got to figure out how, how are they going to best receive this message. Paul was amazing at that. I'm getting back on course now, folks. Sorry. Paul tells Timothy that he must train himself for godliness. Training is a purposeful and disciplined endeavor to achieve a clear objective. And what usually comes to mind when I think about that is athletes. It, I know it came to Paul's mind because he uses that analogy quite a bit. Um, famously in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 26. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. So while the objective of athletic training is to ultimately help win a competition, the objective that Paul is talking about training for in verse 7 is to achieve godliness. And I love the way one commentary defined godliness. It said, godliness is the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the attendant determination to honor him in all one's conduct. That's pretty good. Coming back to 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul's telling Timothy, and, and, and us too, we need to work out in God's word so that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit to strive for godliness. And one workout does not constitute training. You know, an athlete's not going to win the race by jogging around the block one time. A Christian is not going to grow in godliness by reading the Bible every once in a while or going to church on Christmas and Easter. Training is a consistent, frequent, and focused effort, and we need to develop discipline to consume, meditate, and apply God's word throughout every single day. To me, there are, some, there are few things less interesting than listening to a professional athlete be interviewed. Because they're trained. There's that word again. They're trained to say things and not really say anything. You know, it's, it's, they're trained to not give the other team bulletin board information. If they don't even answer the question if you listen to it, the reporter can say, hey, that was a great game. Where are you going to dinner tonight? And the athlete will say, well, I take my hat off to the opposing team. They were really good, and my teammates they didn't leave anything in the locker room, and my coach probably in the... 
It's just, it's a snore fest. But one time I heard an interview that was really cool. The, um, the team had just won a playoff game. And now they were going to go play this really, really good team. And the team that had just won the game was tremendous underdogs. So the reporter said, so you're going to play, you're going to play this team that is ripping everybody up in the league. How do you get ready for this? And the athlete said, I don't get ready. I stay ready. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's good. So I tried this at home. I said, you know, Diane came down and, hey, Glenn, we have to get ready to go. I said, Diane, I don't have to get ready. I stay ready. She's like, you're in your pajamas. I'm not sure if you understand what this means. So it, is, so it sounded good when the athlete pulled it off. But, you know. so, so Paul is saying that we need to stay ready and sharp so that we don't fall into a, to heresy. And so that we can point others in the right direction by being trained in godliness. So moving on to verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul is still building upon the physical fitness reference that he knows will resonate with Timothy, and he uses the limitation of physical fitness to catapult to a greater concept. He says bodily training is of some value, meaning there are enormous benefits in exercise and eating well, benefits that are literally life-changing and in some cases life-saving. However, Paul points out that no matter how valuable physical training is, the benefits are, are limited. They only have value in limited ways during our limited present life. But on the other hand, Paul says godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So whereas physical training is helpful in some aspects of our lives, there is absolutely no area of our lives in which godliness doesn't make better. It doesn't make everything peaches and cream, but it does change our priorities and our perspectives. It gives us calm. It gives us hope, peace, and joy even when things are hard. So in a nutshell, godliness helps us live up to the eternal purpose for which we were created, and that's to glorify God. And there's nothing more valuable than that. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What Paul is saying here is that what he just said about godliness is something that we can take to the bank. It's, it's a sure thing. The deserving of full acceptance part of the verses is commonly interpreted to mean two things. Either Paul is exhorting Timothy and, and us to completely embrace the full value of godliness, in other words, he's saying, don't just accept that godliness has value in the life to come, but not this life or vice versa. Or by deserving a full acceptance, Paul may be saying that everyone should accept the truth of the value of godliness. And both interpretations are, are true, so we should embrace them both. The first part of verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. So Paul, again, he's, he's still referring to godliness, saying that it is the objective that we put forth effort. This is the thing that we train for in order to achieve. In the next part of the verse, Paul explains why we, strive, why we strive for godliness. Because we have our hope set on the living God. What distinguishes us from the rest of the unbelieving world is not our power, it's not our strength, it's not our influence, it's not our accomplishments, but we all have something of those things and the world values those things, it's, it's not what we put our trust in. Our trust is in the living God. The last part of, this, of the verse, 
who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, this statement is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first interesting observation is the statement itself. Just, just read it. It says, God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Like, could Paul possibly be saying that although believers are particularly saved, whatever that could possibly mean, but also so are other unbelievers? There's no way. Of course not. That would, that would contradict what the gospel says. So more than likely, what Paul is emphasizing is the unity between Jew and Gentile. So it, it's similar to what he said in 1 Timothy 2.1. He said, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. All people are invited to be saved by and to worship the same ruler who is over all people, Jesus Christ. So Paul's not saying everyone will be saved. He's saying everybody is invited to be saved. And the other thing that makes this statement interesting is its original audience, Timothy, a young man who's spiritually mature beyond his years, a young man who certainly knew who God was. So then why did Paul feel compelled to take the time and the energy to introduce God to someone who knew him very well? It was 1967, and the Green Bay Packers had gone to the football field for their first football practice after winning the Super Bowl. Now they're standing around thinking, what can Vince Lombardi, our head coach, tell us that we don't know? We be, we, we're the best. We won the first Super Bowl. So what, what advanced training are we gonna get? Is he gonna come out and basically kiss our ring because we got him, we won the Super Bowl? So they're waiting for Vince Lombardi. He walks out, they all gather around him, and he stands there for a second, and he bends down, he picks up a football, and he goes, gentlemen, this is a football, and this is how the game is played. And he goes on for an hour talking about the basics of football like he was teaching a peewee team. What Vince Lombardi knew was that in order for them to maintain their championship ways, they had to understand the basics. They could never forget the fundamentals. So Paul stated the obvious because even this most basic and principled part of our faith can't be reiterated, can't be studied, and can't be meditated on enough. It's failing to remind ourselves who God is throughout every day that opens the door to dangers mentioned in verses 1 through 5. And the dangers that Paul pointed out in those verses is still alive and well today as they were when he mentioned them back then. Without vigilance, we can all be susceptible to apostasy, deceivers, and heresy. There's only one defense, godliness. May we all be vigilant in our training for it.